the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome everyone to this special NAP7 author interview. Uh, my name is Mike Charlesworth and I'm an editor of Anesthesia and today I'm delighted to be joined by the authors of two papers which are both available today. Um, so welcome to uh, Amira uh, and Tim and yes so can you just introduce yourselves and tell us about um, who you are and your roles with, with these two uh, great papers. Start with Amira. Yeah, I'm Amira. I'm one of the, well, I'm a consultant anaesthetist working at the IUH, Royal United Hospital in Bath. And I've been leading on the baseline surveys or the baseline aspect of um, NAP7, um, being involved since 2019 as a uh, trainee, as a NAP uh, clinical research fellow. Uh, Tim? Um, I'm uh, Tim Cook. I'm uh, uh, a much older consultant anaesthetist, also in Bath, um, uh, working with Amira. And uh, at the college, I've been the uh, lead for the National Audit Projects Programme uh, for a little while. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's my role for the National Audit Projects. And last but not least, uh, Yas as well. I'm Jas Saur. I'm a anaesthetist intensivist at Southmead Hospital in Bristol and I've been the clinical lead for NAP7 so doing a lot of the day-to-day work and managing the project with so I'm the manager and Tim's the sort of director director of football so to speak. <laughs> and it seems like a long time ago now where we had uh, I think the four of us were together when we when we talked about the methods paper, which which seems like a distant memory now, doesn't it? And it's great that we're all here now talking about the first um, in a series of results paper. We've all obviously already had the um, um, the other paper earlier on this year, but we're going to start seeing um, some serious results papers coming through now, and and this is the first of those. So it's really great to see that published today. Um, and we are going to focus on these two papers. Um, the first one reports results from the local coordinator baseline study. And the second one then looks at preparedness for and experiences of perioperative cardiac arrest. And one thing that I noticed when I was looking through these papers is just how much data there is in them. They're really rich with data and it's it'd be really easy to sort of skim over a lot of the sort of surface messages and um, and a lot of the um, data and 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 see some bits and not see others. So what we've tried to do is um, sort of pick out what the key data is and what the key themes are, and hopefully we can discuss those today in the next 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, but first, Amira, can you tell us a little bit about the key differences between the papers and what the main findings were from each? As you say, uh, the two papers focus on the baseline surveys and uh, the baseline survey was conducted at the launch of NAP7, so in June 2021. And um, so it aimed at um, investigating, first of all, the organisational survey, the local coordinator survey, investigating how hospitals and anaesthetic departments are prepared to manage perioperative cardiac arrest. So at the time of the event and uh, following the up, in the aftermath, um, whereas um, the individual anaesthetist survey um, aimed at, and it was sent out to all anaesthetists and aimed at assessing the uh, individual's knowledge, um, current practices and beliefs, attitudes, 
and their uh, past experiences of perioperative cardiac arrest. Um, there were two sort of, uh, in terms of debate, both of the papers were well received and we had over 70% response rate. So 70% of hospitals answered the, um, the base paper one, so baseline survey one, and uh, over 70% of anaesthetists, so that's nearly 11,000 anaesthetists responded to the individual anaesthetist survey. Wow, and so much work has, has gone into collecting it's all taken a long time bringing it all together and analyzing it i was so impressed by you know reading the papers and thinking about what must have been going on behind the scenes to get to the point where you've got a paper ready to be published from all of these individual anesthetists and all these surveys and and all these various other things so congratulations on uh getting it to this stage i know there's a lot of work that's gone into this um i i found first off a really striking finding from the first paper um, was about arrangements for paediatric critical care um, in hospitals that provide care for children. And obviously not all hospitals have a intensive care environment uh, where children can, can be cared for, but a lot of hospitals care for children. Mm. Um, so did you pick out any any problems around that? And did, were you able to speculate on anything that, that could be done um, in the future to make things uh, safer in that regard? Um, well, what we could pick out that... Um, so. Uh, most of the hospitals do provide pediatric care, but only 20, um, 21 of the hospitals that responded uh, had a pediatric intensive care, which meant that um, um, significant or more than sort of 90% of hospitals that um, uh, do not have a P PIC or PICU uh, have to have a uh, anaesthetic team or the intensive care team to step in um, to critically unwell children and then um, in preparation to transfer them to a, a hospital that has a tertiary um, a tertiary set pediatric services. Um, Timor, um, Jazz, do you have any sort of comments about those um, arrangements and um, I know it's it's some, something that probably a lot of us have, have known about working in hospitals and things but We've actually got real data now to show um, that there are these uh, differences between um, um, the levels of care that are provided in, in different hospitals where children are cared for. I, I can pick up on that a bit. I think one of the areas of interest, so across, and, and one of the problems is that we've got, as you say, there's a huge number of, there's a huge amount of data that comes out of this project. Um, we're focusing on one area and there's bits that we can sort of pick from other areas that will come off the trees at other times. Um, you know, the scale of what we've looked at is enormous. I mean, I think in this one of these papers, we're looking at accumulated um, 150,000 years of anaesthetic experience from the 11,000 anaesthetists um, and many tens of thousands of cardiac arrests attended. So these are massive, massive surveys. In terms of the sort of provision of... Um, uh, anesthesia cover and anesthesia uh, training and resuscitation experience. There are bits that come out of the project, which we'll probably focus on a bit later. Um, but um, about, so we've previously shown that about 40% of all pediatric anesthetics take place in, in DGHs. Uh, I think that's probably the same for this uh, project. And in terms of um, anesthetist um, subspecialties, I think paediatrics is, I think, uh, we found on this the, the, the fifth most frequent 
um, uh, subspecialty. Um, about 15% of anaesthetists saying that it's their, you know, their one of their areas of specialty. But for 85% of anaesthetists, it won't be their area of subspecialty, but they may be um, not only required to anaesthetise children in an elective setting, but also required to be on call, um, obviously in DGHs, to cover um, sometimes very critically ill patients. And I think this paper, which Amira might talk to a bit more, gives some insight, and certainly some of the other chapters, uh, the projects or the reports um, give some insight into that um, what is quite a difficult problem to to solve of um, provision of a, a of expertise to a low frequency event which is the critically ill child in a DGH um, by um, individuals who have, may have limited um, pediatric experience particularly um, you know not having day sessions um, and and the project as a whole brings up, raises some questions about that, but put some data um, around it, which is often, often what the NAPs do, put some data into it, which can, can um, inform the discussions. Yeah, I'll say a little bit, okay. I was just gonna say a little bit more on that in that uh, in, in the survey, about 90% of anaesthetists actually said they care of children as part of their usual clinical role. role. So if they're on call or elective lists, yeah, only 20% or 15 to 20% had specialist training and in paediatric anesthesia. And importantly, only about two-thirds had training in paediatric resuscitation. So, so even though there's a large number who practice, whose practice includes children, it may not be regular, but there's an expectation that they would be able to manage emergencies if and when they occur, and you know, a significant proportion, yeah, 40%, have no training or no recent training for that patient group. Whereas for adults, the majority of anaesthetists have training in adult resuscitation and are confident, according to the survey, in managing uh, adult perioperative cardiac arrest. Yeah, I think I think the numbers, um, numbers are about ninety percent uh, for adult and about sixty six percent, so only two thirds for yeah. children, which is a really big difference, I guess, isn't it? Uh, Amira, do you yeah. want to come? Yeah, and and when you when we subanalyzed the data according to uh, grade of anaesthetist, um, it was there wasn't that much of a difference whether a consultant was up to date, uh, whether there was they've had RCUK Cerisas Council. Uh, training within the last four years or yearly update in uh, pediatric uh, defibrillation or CPR. There was not much of a difference between the grades um, apart from uh, CT1 to CT2 and anesthesia associates, which is sort of um, in conduct in which is um, relevant. Sorry, what I'm going to say is um, which reflects their clinical practice. Um, but there's definitely a stark difference between pediatric uh, resuscitation training and adult resuscitation training. And what the baseline survey does, it complements uh, this data um, that demonstrates that most um, uh, hospitals don't actually provide yearly um, access to updates in resuscitation. Uh, so there's definitely a room for improvement in that uh, aspect of care. Yeah, that's something for me that comes out of, of this paper that, that something that 
can be we can do something about uh, today and we can change um so hope hopefully going forward that's a real positive from the paper um was there any other big variations in practice or or deficiencies or anything else like that that were revealed uh, in the survey mirror um what we also found was there was a sort of huge variation of um uh, the level of emergency uh, equipment provision so most hospitals or most anesthetic departments were had a, a defibrillator available in every theater complex however um, there was a lack of um, or sort of deficiency in the provision of advanced airway equipment. For example, with paediatric services or those every, every we asked each anaesthetic department whether every anaesthetic um, location where paediatric anaesthesia take, pl takes place and whether they uh, provided paediatric specific equipment, paediatric specific defib pads or um, advanced air equipment such as a video laryngoscope um, and there was there was a stark difference between um, uh, adult and pediatric uh, provision um, from what I remember um, and just sort of reminding myself of the figures I think about a quarter so 15 percent of um, theatre location providing uh, anaesthetic paediatric care did not have uh, advanced airway equipment for that population. And this is what this means is that we're not meeting um, the GPAS standards, so that's uh, guidelines of provision of anaesthetic services, um, which have been recently updated in January this year. And there's a, there's a, uh, one of the things to pick up on that is this, is this sort of universal provision of defibrillators. And I mean, it's not a massive secret, but across the across the project, um, you know, the frequency with which defibrillation is required um, for perioperative cardiac arrest is is, is really relatively small. Um, but um, and then there's this sort of something of a lack of provision of of training in paediatric resuscitation and over representation throughout the project of paediatric problems particularly in the younger children, and also an overrepresentation within children of airway problems. And so there's this somehow this sort of, I mean, I mean, the background is that there's a lot of very good provision. So there's particularly across um, adults, very good, but in paediatrics, there's this sort of this gap. Um, and it's, it's a gap in an area which is of concern because um, uh, paediatrics, particularly uh, small children, um, particularly airways, uh, remote locations, you know, they are, are well represented in in areas of problems. Um, so it's a it shows a systemic as well as a um, an out sort of an outcome uh, issue that, that can be got to be put together. Just uh, yeah, I was just going to add a bit more. So one of the things that the survey showed was that a lot of a lot of activity happens in remote locations and nearly all departments have remote locations where they do both adult and paediatric surgery and uh, or procedures so radiology and so on and the provision of equipment in those areas doesn't match what's available in in main theater complexes and also the variation and how people would call for help so, you know, most main third complexes have some sort of alarm system, but there's huge variation. So 
hospitals can have an alarm system. Some have a bell, you know, like a physical bell. Some some mm. hospitals have whistles that you might blow. Yeah, so there's a huge variation. And then once you get to remote locations, again, it's very variable, both in terms of how you call for help. And in many, it's just a case of calling the hospital-based cardiac arrest team because there's no way of guaranteeing immediate anaesthetic help. You're just relying on the arrest team. And then, again, as Tim says, the equipment deficiencies seen in all hospitals are a sort of a scale much more common in remote locations such as radiology sites or remote theatres that are away from the main theatre complex. So, you know, if you're giving an anaesthetic in one of those areas, you're on your own if something goes wrong and you're relying on, you know, you are relying on help coming and, you know, that's not always well-designed in many settings. It's worth emphasising that, you know, remote locations are not provision of a trivial amount of anaesthesia care. So probably the very small specialty sort of ophthalmology, dental, um, uh, radiology, CT, things like that, they they account for almost 11% of uh, anaesthesia care episodes um, or you know, properly remote sites. But overall, remote site anaesthesia, if you include some remote sites, a lot of obstetric sites are remote might account for up to 20% of anaesthesia care and out and out of out of hours a, a, a higher proportion and you know pediatrics is probably one in, is about one in seven uh, of every anaesthetic so you put these sort of various different venn diagrams around um uh anaesthesia is no longer you know delivered uh, just in a central operating uh, suite um but is actually uh delivered in in all parts of the hospital and sometimes in very complex settings. So critically ill patients in radiology, we can imagine stroke patients, et cetera, uh, EVARs, et cetera, during the day and nighttime emergencies, and likewise, so not just radiology, um, uh, other centres, other areas of obstetrics. There's another area which I've forgotten, which is another, uh, cardiology, yes, interventional cardiology, et cetera. So though these remote areas and throughout the project, these, these areas sort of, come up not just in organizational structure but also and process but also in 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 terms of being high risk locations for problems and just building on that um the survey categorized one third of obstetric units as, as a remote location um so is that is that something that needs to be factored in when we're designing the hospitals of the future that maybe you know obstetric units probably shouldn't be extra buildings added on in remote locations and there should be centralised and placed closer to operating theatres and, and close to intensive care units, etc. I'll go to Amira. I think that's a, a very good question and um, and that um, because um, most what we've um, from what the activity survey has demonstrated is that a lot of uh, activity um, obstetrics um, and um, and most of it is in a remote location or a third of the obstetric units which means that immediate help from another anaesthetist is not uh, available straight away um, um, so I think we should definitely um, um, factor that in um, Tim or, um, or Jazz I think uh, 
it is an issue in obstetrics. And I think uh, it's covered more in the obstetric, obstetric sections of reports and future papers. But uh, clearly the Ockenden report and others are now asking for greater anesthesia presence on the delivery suite. Our activity survey shows it's the highest area for activity out of hours, overnight activity. So clearly, yeah, in a lot of units, they're looking after, yeah, and the, and the obstetric population is becoming older, more comorbid, more obese. So it's a, it's a, it's a hot spot for potential for complications and issues. And uh, anesthesia departments need to factor that into their planning and organisation. So, so our definition of um, uh, remote site was a, a site which is separate from uh, main theatres, and I think that where, where where an immediate response, I think, was going to be more than three or four minutes to uh, to, to to get you know a response team to there. So, it's, so where critical events could occur. Um, obstetrics, as Jan says, I think I think obstetrics is fifty to sixty percent of all anaesthesia activity at night time. Um, and is uh, almost half of it in, in evening time. It's also the area with the, and this is not to not in any way casting any judgment, it's the area that has the lowest proportion of consultant involvement in in, in its care. And that may be may well be appropriate. Um, but obviously, so you've got a combination of remote work, um, obviously caring for potentially two in, two individuals at the same time. Um, you've got um uh episodes of severe hemorrhage and you've and you've got um of necessity um because of the nature of the work um a, a lower proportion of work being undertaken by consultant staff out of hours partly because it's taken out of hours and so again there's a there's another sort of complex riddle that needs to be sorted out um uh we'll we'll report later um in the piece um whether what that means, whether how that all comes together, is obstetrics high risk or low risk for perioperative cardiac arrest? Uh, well, that's something will come out. We'll, um, we'll I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser. Something will come out a bit later. And something that has actually been um, reported elsewhere. Um, I saw a mention of it on on uh, Twitter recently. Um, was about difference between. Um, um, male anaesthetist and female anaesthetist in terms of how confident they felt um and um that um men were generally more confident than women um and um i have seen sort of similar research findings um elsewhere uh, recently which were highly tweeted and things on social media um so what did the data actually say and, and what can we sort of conclude from that aspect of the uh, paper and i'll go to amira on this um, so we looked at one of the questions, one of the things that we asked uh, each anaesthetist is on their confidence and how competent they felt in managing perioptic cardiac arrest, as well as the aftermath. And, and I analysed, because um, uh, I was intrigued where there was a difference between uh, the genders. And what we demonstrate is that men uh, appear to be, uh, to, to be, more confident they were more likely to report strongly agree or agree um to uh, managing to, to their capability of of, of managing perioptic cardiac arrest um 
Now, in terms of why that is, um, I, I, I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> I don't know if Jazz or Tim have any ideas. Yeah, I can go to um, Tim or Jazz. I was going to just say, so, so we're talking big numbers there. We had about 5,000 male initiatives and 87% felt confident in managing the rest. And we had just over 3,000 female initiatives and 79%. So the difference is relatively small. But I think it's important that we've looked at this, but we haven't looked at actual performance. It's clearly a trait that needs looking at and uh, needs further exploration in that you want someone who's confident but may not perform well as opposed to someone who's less confident and but does perform well. So, yeah, and uh, clearly it's more, it's probably not most of these arrests are attended by more than one person. In fact, our data shows that, yeah, most anaesthetists who attend a cardiac arrest, there's several there. And we didn't dig deep into this, but it would have been interesting to see who took on the leadership roles and stuff and and uh, yeah, and how people interacted as a team. And there's definitely scope by the looks of things for training staff in how to conduct uh, debriefs because one of the other findings was that um, across the board, um, lots of anaesthetists weren't all that confident about leading uh, debriefs. And I think debriefs were recognising are increasingly important for such events. Yeah, I don't think, I think, Perhaps that reflects on our uh, training. Um, I know through I've recently completed my uh, anaesthetics training and became a consultant. And I don't really recall ever having any uh, training specific to uh, managing the aftermath, uh, not just the debrief process, um, but also communicating with relatives and the next of kin. Um, all I recall mm -hmm. is, um, you know, when I've been um doing RCUK training in resuscitation that's when I've had um some training within that aspect but otherwise uh, it's not really part of the curriculum I'm going to ask all of you one final question before we finish uh, but you're only allowed to give a one-word answer so um do we anesthetize patients in theatre or in the anesthetic room and I'll start with uh, Jazz I'm only allowed one answer, I'd say, <laughs> um, Well, Amira and I work in the same hospital, um, and uh, we don't use anaesthetic rooms either. I don't think you can do a randomised controlled trial to, to look at, you know, safety using anaesthetic rooms or not using anaesthetic rooms. I think that it would change too many things when you do that. Um, so the NAPs are quite useful for looking, or well, they're very useful for looking at rare events that you can't really look at with RCTs. Um, and so we have got a chapter in, inevitably, we've got a chapter in the NAPS looking at, we've got one looking at transfers, we've got one looking at monitoring, we've got one looking at, at anaesthetic rooms. We've tried to tease out some of the not, uh, you know, I, I think it will inform the discussion. It doesn't give a definitive answer, but it provides some pointers, some information. Um, it's interesting that in during the pandemic, everybody flipped from, so we had about roughly 90% of people of, of anaesthetists, of, oh, sorry, of patients were anaesthetised in the anaesthetic room pre-pandemic. It's a little bit less than that now, but in the during the pandemic, uh, it flipped and 80, 90, 90 95% were anaesthetised in theatre. Overall, in the UK, there's been uh, an increase in the use of operating rooms, so, um, so patients are more and more likely to be anaesthetised in 
theatre. There's going to be two papers obviously published today and there will be another three main papers coming out in the near future as well. And there'll be several other papers um, coming out after that on subspecialties. So lot, lots more to come. So, But for now, we're just concentrating on these two papers. And I'd really encourage everyone to, to read them in full because there's no substitute for that. Um, so thank you very much, Tim uh, and Amira and Jazz. Um, both papers are free to read, um, free forever, uh, open access. Um, so please do go away and download the papers and read them in full um, and let us know if you've got any questions, send us any letters, um, tweet us, we'll respond. Uh, Tim Tim's very good at responding on Twitter and he will answer any of your questions if you've got particular queries about any of the methods used or, or what a partic particular conclusion that's drawn from the paper. We will try our best to, uh, to answer those uh, on Twitter or on X as it's called these days. Um, so thank you very much, and we'll, we'll see you very soon for um, another interview um, where we're going to be talking with Andrew Kane and colleague from a brand new editor from Australia, Mary Ann's going to be talking to Andrew, and Tim and, and Jazz might also be joining, um, and that's going to be another excellent paper, uh, so please do see us for that. Thank you very much. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>